found a couple of TikTok accounts for people who are stationed in Antarctica, and everyone down there seems to have a great sense of humor. <laughs> Welcome to episode of Nation. My name is Brian Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And for October, we are diving into a genre that we ourselves, I think, are learning a lot about this month. And we're going to learn more about it as the month progresses. And that is the genre known as the body horror genre. So, so Thomas, how much do you know about the body horror genre? You know, it's interesting watching this movie this week to get ready for this i and and watching next week's movie as well which mm-hmm. i went ahead and did because i i got i got it it like cooled off it got below 80 in atlanta this week so i was just like immediately like horror movies let's go it's october <laughs> baby um <laughs> yeah you know when we picked this month i i kind of i think you and i both suggested we pick it because it's a subgenre of horror we're not super familiar with yeah, but like the two movies we're covering straight out the bat this month, I would consider like two of my favorite horror movies. So it's interesting, and like I, I like Cronenberg, I like you know The Fly. It's just I think it's a genre that I've never gone into, but I really appreciate the yeah. best, and then yeah. I've never like really delved in below the cream of the crop, you know. So I'm I'm interested to kind of see what else we turn up this month but but yeah I, I absolutely love the thing so i'm always excited to to talk about that yeah that that's a that's a that's a it's very similar with me it's like it's i looked at the list because this list was was a little bit harder to create than what we usually do and i was just like man i haven't seen a lot off this like again it's like i've seen the top things and i've seen also these kind of ones because we'll dive into this too talking about the genre of like what is considered body horror because you have things that like people will consider like like the thing or like anything by Cronenberg or the reanimator but then like you delve into it and like it's kind of like what is what is body horror because is the wolfman or anything with werewolves body horror it kind of is mm-hmm. like American Wolf of London would be body horror technically is that it's it's a something has has changed uh within them and it could be a like it's a stir- disturbing violation of the body is kind of what a, a, a usual definition of it is, mm-hmm. but it could be gro- grotesque. It could be uh, uh, psychologically. It could be like physically. Um, it could be a mutation, emulation. It could, is it zombies? Like that's the answer. It could be a lot of different things. Um, and so that's why I think we're going to try to discover and discuss this month. Um, and so with, with looking at this genre, just to kind of lay the groundwork what i found interesting kind of researching this time is again we talked about this last month uh with southern southern films in a way about like it's it's kind of uh seeds kind of planting from literature in some way mm-hmm. of how it spurs from that and weirdly body horror also comes from literature it's like the the first example everyone kind of points to is frankenstein is mary shelley's frankenstein yeah and how that's the early example of body horror and that essentially carries over and you have to look at like kind of the the history of film of like you get frankenstein that becomes a movie and that's kind of considered the first like body horror film in a way with james wells frankenstein but then you have other films like wolfman again in that horror that universal horror monster kind of world some people even kind of consider dracula one as well depending on like who it is because again again the core i want to get at this month is why researching and kind of watching some of these films 
is that the core body horror is this i this fear of losing your humanity mm-hmm. that is kind of the core of it because i've watched things like invasion of the body snatchers even the day with the thing is that everyone is afraid of being consumed by something and being taken over and losing control mm-hmm. and a lot of times that comes from i guess and you can probably talk about this here it's like that always, with horror it, it, horror is always kind of sometimes defined by like what's happening in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. And the 1950s is a big kind of era of that because of things like, I mean, with like McCarthyism, basically. Yeah. Because what are some horror films you think of in that era that like, kind of, and, not, and that had to be body horror, but just like how horror films, like what type of horror films are like being made that kind of like to capture that mood that's happening in the country? Yeah, we definitely had a lot of, and and we'll talk about this more today, but, like alien invasion, like pod people invasion of the yeah. body snatchers, these movies that were like, these things are coming from outside. They're not of us. They're not part of us, but you, you, you will never have any idea who they are until it's too late. I mean, that is, that is straight up red scare stuff yeah. right there. Um, and then you also had a lot of, you know, starting in the fifties and, and continuing to kind of grow strong from the fifties through the eighties. You're, you've also got the cold war going on and, um, a lot of you know that kind of fear i feel like especially like you know the 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 greatest of the cold war kind of fallout movies would be um hills have eyes which is literally about you know what could happen to you if you're you know subjected to radiation um so yeah you you got a lot of stuff to be scared about in that that period but yeah definitely a lot of alien related stuff just this idea even more so than like ghosts or supernatural at that point it's this idea of something that can come from completely outside of our world and you would never know until it's taken you over until yeah until it's too late i actually yesterday to kind of prep for this month i watched the original invasion of the body snatchers and this is one again like it's on some list for body horror and sometimes it isn't but it's like again i feel like it's your if if your body is literally being taken over (laughs) by some sort of um entity or organism or something like that i consider it or like i consider that body horror Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a line in there. It was like, oh, they're trying to make us like all the same. And I was just like, oh, this is communism. <laughs> this is what everyone's afraid of. Is it like mm-hmm. we're all going to be equals? And we don't want that. Um, at this point in time in the 50s, uh, that we're basically going to be the same per- person with no emotion. And it's interesting. There's a scene in that movie, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where it's like they're, one of the characters is talking about is their, her uncle has gone has changed in some way and they're like well how has he changed she says, i don't know he's just changed like well does he like is he does he act the same does he have the same memories have you brought things that he only knows that you know or that you two only know she's like yes i've done all that he knows all that but like, then how is he different she's like there's just something he always had this sparkle in his eye and now it's not there mm-hmm. and so it's this interesting thing of how like and with that movie it's like this kind of intimate intimacy they have is what like makes them human in a way that they can recognize but if that's not there that's when everything feels off mm-hmm. and i think and it's hard to spot and i think with today's movie with the thing again that's this idea of like it's this mistrust and paranoia of what is around me does the person i think i know not the person i know and and then you take that and put it in the world of like your neighbor basically 
And as you said, like, it's like the kind of the big kind of eras of body horror. It's like 50s and 80s is the thing. And again, it's usually going with the 50s being kind of the communism and the Red Scare, the beginning of the Cold War. And the 80s is kind of the peak of kind of this Cold War era. And I, I think, too, and we'll get into this more with, like, say, Cronenberg stuff. Again, it's losing oneself in the 80s. And I think when you look at things like materialism and consumerism that's po- really popping up in the 80s with, like... Mm-hmm with the yuppies and everything i it, it's it's very like it's these horror films are definitely like taking that route and the thing is definitely a more cynical version of like the sci-fi genre that's happening at that point in the 80s and we'll get more into that um as we as we go on uh today so yeah and there are, like some examples i think of another one i want to bring out real quick is the reanimator because a big big influence on the genre is hp lovecraft mm. I, have you read any Lovecraft? Because I, I have not. Yeah, that yeah. That one, I don't know. I, I've tried a little bit of Lovecraft. It's a little too. I guess if there's like, you know, this idea of like hard sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, I guess Lovecraft would be like hard horror. <laughs> yeah. In a yeah. way, it's just it's just a little too deep in the mythology for me. Because because I I was reading up on the thing today. It's like talking about how like uh, Macready is your typical play. Kurt Russell is your typical like heroic protagonist your your traditional protagonist when wilford brimley is the lovecraftian protagonist where it's this person who believes this one thing gets consumed by it and then becomes it mm-hmm. essentially and so that was interesting and then looking at kind of the air it's like the reanimator is is based on it's a mixture of like frankenstein but also a lovecraft uh short story and so Lovecraft, and so kind of the designs of the of 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 these creatures can kind of come from Lovecraftian stories. I think even the initial short story for this this uh, which we get into this movie had this kind of Lovecraftian monster in it. So so that's kind of some things we're talking about. The big again, the big core of this is this idea of fear of losing your humanity and identity that usually is popping up in a lot of these. Uh, films is there any other tro- like things you want to bring up like trope wise or theme wise that you think we're going to be talking about this month i just I, a, a question i want to pose uh-huh. as we head into the month that i don't have an answer for is there's a there's a thin line in recent years between what i consider body horror which i'm gonna have i feel like a better idea of at the end of this month and and what's come to be known as torture porn and i'm very curious as we get into this month, like what, where, where we're going to find that line is thematically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, 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 that's kind of a, that's kind of an investigation. I'm, I'm doing myself as we go through that's this your month. Pers- that's, yeah, that's your personal investigation. I gotcha. Yeah. Because when talking about the thing, it's not torture porn, but I will say it, it is not for the faint at heart. It's a very, <laughs> if you don't like blood and gore, the thing is not, for you uh because it's the creature effects are very ahead of their time and and very groundbreaking but also very gruesome and we'll talk about in the aftermath later of how it was received um so yeah today we're talking about the thing released in 1982 and the thing tells the story about a group of american researchers who are working down antarctica when they come in contact with some unknown kind of parasitic creature that can shapeshift and replicate any living organism the group is soon overcome by paranoia and mistrust as they do not know who in their camp could actually be the thing. The film stars Kurt Russell in the lead role of R.J. McCready, a kind of rough-around-the-edges helicopter pilot. It's not mentioned in the film, 
But McCready's backstory was that he was a Vietnam War pilot. And there's like a line where he's like, you, you don't know the things I've seen. Or something he says at one point to Childs when he's like, I can sleep all night. Or I'm a light sleeper or something. It's like, it's kind of harkening back to like that, the, the time in Vietnam. Uh, the film also stars Keith David, Wilfred Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Richard Dysart, and several other character actors of the era. In terms of crew, some important crew members to know, the film was directed by John Carpenter, who had directed such films as The Fog, Escape from New York, and Halloween before taking on this film. The film was produced by David Foster and Lawrence Terman. Foster had previously produced such films as Robert Altman's McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway, while Terman's most famous credit was The Graduate from 1967. Did not know the guy Ooh, who gave us The Graduate also, <laughs> also directed the thing, or also produced the thing. Those are solid movies. Yeah, very solid. Uh, Terman and Foster become producing partners uh, in the kind of the 70s. Um, and they did such films as The Drowning Pool, starring Paul Newman, kind of a sequel to another film called Harper. And the underrated and underseen movie called The Nickel Ride that you should check out if you guys can find it. It's very hard to find. Directed by Robert Mulligan, who did To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, it's kind of an L.A. kind of crime noir from the 70s. Uh, the film was written by Bill Lancaster, scored by Ennio Morricone, and, sh- and hey. director, of photo- director of photography was Dean Cundy, who would later shoot things like uh, Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, things like that. Um, so, so initial thoughts with this. So, what was what's your history with the thing? When was the first? I guess the first time you saw it. How has it been in your life? All that jazz. Well, here's if, if we're if we're diving into our past with horror movies. I did not like horror movies when I was a kid. Same. Um, Hated them. <laughs> did not like them at all. They scared the shit out of me. Um, Same. I was still kind of like I was still kind of like morbidly drawn to them, but I. I was not like I had so many friends in school who would just like sit and watch like horror would go home like every night and watch horror movies. And yeah. I could not do that. The first time I saw The Sixth Sense, I was scared for a month. <laughs> and it was like really like it was hurricane season. It was like always overcast. And I was just like, I, I remember being like, this is my life now. Like, I'm never going to see the sun again. Like this movie has has cursed me. Um <laughs> And at some point, I, I want to say probably when I started studying, when I got into high school and started taking yeah. like classes at community college, like studying film critically, our professor showed us, I had I'd already seen like some Hitchcock, but our professor got us into Hitchcock and I like loved it. And then at some point this, this switch just flipped and I was like, I need to see everything that I've been missing out on for, you know, the first 18 years of my life. And, um, so yeah, I watched like kind of all the classics, everything I could get my hands on. So saw the thing for the first time sometime in college. I don't really remember like the first time yeah. I saw it because it's one of those I've seen so many times yeah. uh, since then. But um, yeah, I absolutely like just remember the first time seeing this being like blown away. Like you said, it is the creature effects are intense. But if you have any sort of appreciation for that trade, this is like one of the most incredible movies to watch just in the way that they pull it off. And in the way, like every time you're presented with a creature effect, it's you never see the same thing twice yeah. in this movie. And it's just constantly inventing upon itself. Like, what is this monster going to do the next time we see it? And it's amazing. It's insane. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. So, some more backgrounds, Thomas. I was not into horror growing up. It really wasn't until maybe late high school early college i feel like weirdly i think it was like scream and like west craven that got me into horror mm-hmm. was the thing i remember we talked about that last year around this time uh, but uh 
so yeah, again, college was when I kind of really delved into it, but thing was still always one that like evaded me. Like, so I didn't see it until moving to LA after grad school. So it wasn't until it was in our movie group. The first, I think you'd already moved away, but we had watched the thing one night. Well, I do remember I tried to rent it from, I tried to rent it from Cinephile one time and somebody had like had the copy, like sometime around, like we were doing, you know, movies in the backyard and I was like, Oh, I'm going to get the thing. And they were like, Oh, they like pulled it up and they're like, Oh, thing's been out for like three months uh we might yeah. need to look into this i always get on about that uh, i like i like hey i'm looking for this movie they go oh man it looks like it's been out for like a thousand days i was <laughs> like well that's not coming back guys yeah so let me just go buy it and donate to you guys because like that's what happened with girl fight girl fight it had been out for like a thousand days like guys i'll just buy it and watch it and then <laughs> give it to you guys um so yeah but so that was my first time seeing it was a few years ago and again i was blown away it was like oh yeah i get it I get it now because um, it was just I think everything about it and we'll dive into more in terms of things we like but like technically it's just astounding and when watching it you see the influence it would later have on like other films mm-hmm. it's like I mean the big one I'll bring up now it's like when watching it this time I was like oh this is this is hateful eight mm. this is t- and I, I forgot and I, I remember like probably thinking that in the moment when like kind of criticism came out about hateful late, like kind of analysis or whatever and comparing to the thing. Cause, cause Russell's in both of them. It's kind of wintry backgrounds and they actually use, they actually use more part of Morricone's unused score for the thing in hateful late. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very much in that realm. And then I even watched, I watched recently the faculty directed by Robert mm-hmm. Rodriguez underrated film. I will say that it's a fun film, but there's a scene where it's literally the blood testing scene in from the thing, but in like this other format that they're doing in like nineties high school horror, essentially. And I was like, Oh, just the amount of the influence these, these, this film kind of has from just a storytelling aspect, but then also the creature and, and kind of special effects a- aspect. It's kind of insane. So I guess it's time to move into history of how this got into production. Um, so some backstory on the story of the thing carpenter's version is actually based on two earlier works if you Mm -hmm. are a fan of it you are probably aware of this um the original story of the film comes from the short story who goes there from 1938 by john w campbell campbell became began working for a science fiction pulp magazine by the name of astounding science fiction when he was 21 years old and like 1931 is when he started by 1937 the magazine, after bankruptcy and several leadership changes, Campbell became the magazine's lead editor, allowing him more freedom. And while working as the editor of the magazine, he also became a very prolific writer under the pseudonym Don A. Stewart. And when when Who Goes There was published, it was credited to the Stewart name. So he'd basically write something and then sell it to the magazine he was the editor for under this name. After about a decade, famed director Howard Hawks read the original short story while he was on a movie, uh, and he thought this would be a great film. And Hawks wanted to direct the film, but apparently due to some issues with the Directors Guild of America, Hawks was not allowed to. I'm not entirely sure why. That's why there's always been confusion of, like, it's like Howard Hawks is the thing from another world. Um, and it's always kind of credited to him, but in actuality, the credits director 
is Christian Neeby, who is actually Hawks's editor. So it sounds like Howard Hawks directed that movie. Yeah. So so Neeby had edited such films as The Big Sleep, To Have and Have Not, and Red River. Again, to this day, there's debate over how much the film was directed by Neeby or Hawks. It seems like they both had directing, directing duties in some way, but it's unclear of who had more. It's like I've it's I've read that Hawks would rehearse the actors, but then Neepy would be the one that ter- that took or that kind of set up the the technical aspect of it. So it almost feels like a co-directing type thing. I'm not mm-hmm. entirely sure. Um, while adapting the short story, the film's title would been would change from "Who Goes There" to "The Thing," and a lot of Campbell's original themes and concepts were cut from that film, including the thing's ability to shape shift. An interesting fact about the movie: the final title would be "The Thing from Another World." The From Another World was apparently tacked on because before releasing it, there was a famous country song by a singer by a guy named Phil Harris called The Thing. And the studio wanted to distance themselves from the song for some reason. That's probably probably smart. They're like, I don't think it was The Thing. But then I also read that later on when they were, they were marketing the film, they used that song as a way to market the film. So who knows? Uh, but you can like watch you can like watch the movie and you'll see like the 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 famous like the thing come up, but then it's like from another world in a weird kind of different text. Um, so anyway, once the film was released, it became a box office and critical success. The studio was initially worried about how the film would be perceived because it was a science fiction film, uh, and there weren't really a lot of great ones that were being made. Apparently, uh, it ended up being the highest grossing sci fi film of the year, beating out another sci fi classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still. The film became a classic of the era, showcasing the fears that America was having regarding such issues as communism and the ongoing Cold War. In the mid-1970s, producers Lawrence Terman and David Foster thought it would be an interesting idea to remake The Thing from Another World in our current current world. Uh, but they wanted to make a more faithful adaptation to Campbell's work, because Campbell actually didn't love the movie that was made, because it was so, he's, like, he's like, I don't really know how to judge films, but like I know that's not the thing I wrote. Mm. Um, they pitched the Universal, and Universal allowed them to continue developing the project. Around this time, this is a weird... I don't know how this happened. Around this time, the rights to the thing from another world were actually bought by a producer by the name of Wilbur Stark. There were some fl- conflicting reports of when this happened, if it was 1976 or 1980. But at some point, Stark had bought a total of 23 RKO movies from three Wall Street financiers who did not know what they had. I don't know how these guys obtain these rights, these like <laughs> Wall Street guys. Um, but essentially Stark bought them off the men and he offered them a cut of the film's profits if they were ever made. Um, according to an article in an issue of Photoplay magazine from the 80s, it was said that Stark had a profitable habit of buying up old good films for fashionable retreads. Another famous example of this that he did was the 1982 remake of Cat People. So you just buy up old films that were not well known and then like try to sell them off to be remade or something. Hmm. Um, in order to be work, in order to keep continue working the project, Universal Pictures would buy the rights from Stark in exchange for executive producer credit on the film, but also it had to appear on the posters, print advertisements, television commercials, and studio press kits. Um, this guy just got that credit on there. Uh, on top of that, Universal bought the rights to Campbell's original short story. Um, it seems there wasn't a lot of headway being made with the thing, but one of the co-producers, Stuart Cohen, talked with his friend and young filmmaker, John Carpenter, about directing the film. But it didn't go much further than that because Carpenter was not a known director. 
He had mostly been known for making independent films, one of them being a movie called Dark Star. And so this mm. is pre-Halloween, by the way. Yeah. Um, instead, Universal decided to go with Toby Hooper, the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because he was under contract. At the end of the 1970s, two films were released that became massive financial successes, prompting the studio to really push forward on the thing. The first would be the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, starring Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams. The other film being the 1979 film Alien, directed by Ridley Scott and starring Sigourney Weaver. Along with Star Wars, these two films showed the science fiction genre was a viable one for audiences in the 70s into the 80s. However, when it came to pushing forward, the producers would not, were not happy with the approach Toby Hooper and his writer were taking, so they eventually let him go. Hooper openly found Campbell's novella to be boring, is what he said. Hooper also wanted, this is a crazy idea, Hooper wanted the film to be a horror comedy with slapstick humor. It was pitched as a swashbuckling action-adventure epic, a modern-day Moby Dick set not in the ocean, but the bottom of the world, Antarctica. The producers were appalled by this pitch, this pitch script, and Cohen later said, we avoided a disaster. It would have been one of the worst movies ever made. And that's when they decided to go get John Landis to direct the film. Oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, director of Animal House, later the Blues Brothers, but he would also turn it down. And soon they realized, you know, we need to go back to John Carpenter because John Carpenter had had success with Halloween. And so they went back to him and Carpenter became loosely attached because Carpenter, he was hesitant to take on the job because he thought it would be a difficult to surpass the original film. Him being a massive fan of the original, it actually, as you know, it's like it appears in Halloween. It's like the kids that Jamie Lee Curtis's babysitting are actually watching the thing from another world on television. Um, also, Howard Hawks, which is somewhat surprising, Howard Hawks is John Carpenter's favorite director. Hmm. The big, big, uh, big Red River fan. Big Red River fan. Uh, well, because like uh, someone kind of brought up how like assault, assault on Precinct Thirteen is kind of like a modern day like contained Howard Hawks movie instead of like a western. And Red River, it's like it's this type movie. So yeah, but the thing about Carpenter when it came to the orig the original film, he was the thing that interested him most was he's like I the monster was not memorable, and that was the one flaw he thought with the original film. Mm -hmm. Um, like Terman and Foster, Carpenter wanted to go back to Campbell's original short story. He had always believed there were a lot of themes that Campbell touched on in the story that were cut from the film, and he felt they were even more timely today. He also compared the film's mystery and issues with paranoia and trust uh, to Agatha Christie mysteries, specifically, and then there were none. Mm -hmm. um, but when it came to writing the film, Carpenter did not want to write the script. Apparently he had trouble with writing Escape from New York and later another screenwriting assignment. So he was like, I just bring someone else in. I don't want to deal with it. So they looked at several writers and hired several writers and talked to them. One of them being Richard Matheson, who had written several classics, Twilight Zone film or Twilight Zone episodes like Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. He would also write the original novel for I Am Legend. Uh, but it seems like Carpenter and the producer just never messed with any of these writers. That's when they went to screenwriter Bill Lancaster. And John Carpenter had really liked Lancaster's most recent film, The Bad News Bears. Yeah, classic. Yeah, Terman and Foster. Terrifying. Terrifying, terrifying. Terman and Foster originally met with Lancaster before Carpenter came on, and Lancaster was just not interested in remaking the original film. Uh, the next time they came back, Lancaster had read Campbell's original short story, and Carpenter was on board, and that's when he agreed to write the script. 
it somewhat makes sense just because of like the chemistry and ensemble of the of the thing that the guy who wrote Bad News Bears kind of wrote this. Mm. Like in terms of if you, like if, if it makes sense when you look at the ensemble of it. So when Lancaster came in, he made several major changes in comparison to the original short story. I guess some of the drafts have been made before. In the novella, the story is apparently told in flashback, but Lancaster throws you into the action and cuts out the flashback kind of formula. Mm. He also cut the characters down in the novella from 37 what to 12. Yeah, 37 characters. Oh man. Yeah, there's no way you can do that in a in a movie. Like it was, <laughs> yeah. He was like there was no time to like get to know anyone in in the script. Um he also se- added several scenes, the biggest being the blood testing scene that occurs about midway through the film when, when McCready begins to test everyone as kind of there's mistrust throughout the camp. Carpenter would later say, later say that the blood testing sequence was the scene that made him want to make the movie. But Carpenter almost backed out of the film as development progressed. Uh, apparently Carpenter's dream project was close to being financed. A movie called El Diablo that later became a TV movie in the 90s. Uh, and he was contemplating dropping out of the thing for this film. Uh, the producers looked at replacing Carpenter with three other three other directors, uh, one being Michael Ritchie, who had done Bad News Bears, mm-hmm. uh, Walter Hill, and Sam Peckinpah. Very different movies with mm-hmm. any of those directors. Uh, Carpenter soon realized for the other project, the other project was not as far along as he originally thought, so he decided to stay on the thing. So that's how it comes to production. I'll bring up casting a little bit later. Um because that's weirdly comes in a little bit late. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so when you look at favorite, like scenes you love about the things, this movie or things you like about this film, like what's one of the things that one of your favorite scenes? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously I think everyone was right to be drawn in by the blood testing scene. Cause I think that is, it's amazing. Such an incredibly well done scene. I, I think this movie, you know, sometimes you watch oh, like a horror movie and you're like, I know this is going to be a horror movie and you just want it to get to like, the horror stuff but i do think this one has like a really the the way it builds the world is really well done just from yeah. that that opening scene which you know if you've never seen the movie before and you go in completely blind is like so well done and just making you think like you know it opens with these norwegian guys chasing yeah. down a dog with a helicopter yeah and, and shooting like, at it trying like, to kill and, it and like yeah literally trying to kill these americans to get to the dog and you're just like yeah. what what the hell these guys have just snapped and so, you know, the ensuing, you get to kind of know as well as you need to know the crew members, you know, I'm not going to yeah. say there's like deep characterization of anyone on the crew here, but you do get a good idea for like the different roles everybody plays and um, you get to meet McCready and, uh, yeah. and and go out and kind of explore that other base. But I, I, I don't want to I don't want to just call out like the creature scenes, but they are they are the best. But yeah, the the blood testing scene is just a perfect combination of like suspense and paranoia and then and just like building 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 and then explodes in the most incredible way um and i think the other one that that you know i I really love is the uh the autopsy or not the autopsy but like the the cpr scene when they're trying to um i guess the defibrillator scene when they're trying one of the guys kind of falls ill and they're trying to to resuscitate him Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it does not go well yeah, it's interesting to go go back to the the blood testing and kind of go with that because that's the 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 defibrillator scene is kind of happening like when that distrust is not fully there. Mm-hmm. So like that's why it's like no one's they're, they're just kind of like you had the previous scene where it's like oh like 
who like the blood it was the blood thing it was like when they're trying to find blood or whatever yeah um like oh we'll we'll put the plugs together and see if they fight like like see how they react or whatever and so they weren't fully like mistrusting everyone and so i think it's like that scene when the defibrillator happens that's when like everything like that's when everything's out the window and that is that is a great scene with without any like creature effects is when um uh windows runs for the like gun cabinet and grabs the shotgun out and and gary's got his pistol out and that's that's the first time you kind of see that paranoia when they when they really realize like it could be any of us right now um yeah that seems really well done and and what to go with what you said with the blood testing things like it's like it's perfectly edited i think the again the suspense is great i think the character's great One, one moment i like it's like like mccready at one point shoots shoots one of the guys clark who's trying clark yeah richard mazer yeah he's trying and, and like self-defense like mccready shoots him and there's this great moment afterwards when they're testing the blood and because the thing is about it is that if they get if they die in terms of human form if they die in human form it's the thing's not technically dead it can mm-hmm. still come back it's like so they don't fully know so it's the moment when he's when mccready's testing the blood and he tests clark's blood and nothing happens to it and childs is just like i guess that makes you a murderer Mm -hmm. keith david is a great antagonist yeah for russell in this film like they're really great together Mm -hmm. what do you got in mind mccready a little test windows you and palmer tie everybody down real tight what for for your health come on let's rush him he's not gonna blow us all up no no wait a minute wait a minute Let's, let's do what Max says. I mean, uh, he wasted Norris pretty quick, didn't he? That's close enough, Clark. He ain't tying me up. Then I'll have to kill you, child. Then kill me. I mean it. you do another scene i like it's it's wilford brimley when really a lot of wilford brimley stuff in this movie <laughs> i love but the one that is just like kind of menacing it feel like just as ominous as, as the word is when russell comes to check on um oh yeah to check on brimley uh to his character blair and blair's just like i'm fine now like just let yeah, me out let me, it's let no me back big in deal. it's that that scene is chilling because you that yeah, that's is. really I think that's really the only time the movie tips its hand a little bit mm-hmm. that like this person is gone. Yeah, um, because we we know like we've he's the doctor is like one of the only people or I guess Brimley he's he's a doctor as well. Um, but I think so. yeah, yeah, like we've been with him. We we've seen that scene where he you know where he realizes what's going to happen if this thing gets out. So yeah. we know that like no matter what he would not be like chill about this so yeah. so I, I i do think that's the only scene in the movie where it really goes like this this is one of them <laughs> yeah um but brimley plays it so well he's just like I, I, yeah. I was i was sick but i got better let me let me come back in and you're just like don't open that door <laughs> oh yeah again it's, it's a, the idea i brought up earlier it's like he's this what they're saying is this lovecraftian protagonist of how it's like you have the scene where he's like warning everyone this is what's going to happen we have to protect it and then it cuts to him like 
when he's like just throwing everything around the room and has like the gun in his hand mm-hmm. and like just shooting up everything and they have to capture him and yeah it's just it's very it's a very chilling scene when it cuts to them and, and like it's like mccree like knows like i can't trust this dude like yeah. this dude's definitely it yeah he was he was like willing to murder all of us to like stop this yeah. thing from spreading if anything he'd probably like to stay in that cabin yeah if it exactly was the real thing. blair have you seen fuchs i don't want to stay out here anymore i want to come back inside Funny things. I hear funny things what? out here. Have you come across Fuchs? It ain't Fuchs. It ain't Fuchs. I'm not gonna harm anybody, and there's nothing wrong with me. And if there was, I'm all better now. I'd like to come back inside. Now you got my promise. We'll see. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, man. I want to come back inside, don't you understand it? I'm all right, I'm much better, and I won't harm anybody. And you gotta let me come back inside. Brimley doesn't have like, he, he's not in a lot of scenes. Mm-hmm. It's like once the, once the like, they put him in that, in the, in the shed or wherever, the shack or wherever he's at, he just, just kind of disappears and you're not really seeing him much again. Until he's got that fantastic effect with with gary oh yeah with the hands oh gosh <laughs> it's crazy it's just like just sliding it into the into the space what's another scene that you like i like the uh kind of like the the snowstorm part when um i can't remember what his name is like the cook oh yeah Nalls. yeah Nalls, it's, it's, it's you know when the when the paranoia is like reached a certain but yeah when he comes back and he's just like it was it's mccready yeah because there's a great point and uh, you don't like you're like well because they do this idea of like what what kind of tips it it's that mccready has that scene where he's like talking to himself and he's mm-hmm. like i think their clothes rip or something when they're taken over mm-hmm. and like what 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 one of the characters finds um fuchs he finds like mccready's shirt and it's done that same way and so mm-hmm. for a brief time you're wondering oh man is mccready actually the thing yeah um and yeah, and that's when like Nall sees that, and it's just like it's him, and that it's that great again. That's what like it prompts this ma- massive distrust, mistrust, um, with this entire group. I made sure I got ahead of him on the tow line on the way back. I cut him loose. McCready? He's one of them. When do you think it got to him? I don't know. Could have been any time, uh, anywhere. If it did get to him. Hey, look, Childs, come on. When the lights went out. That would have been the perfect time. Right. You said guys were missing. And Windows, where were you? If I'm where I told you to shut Where were you? So when the lights went out. That's what it was. The players against each other. Let's open it. Hell no. You think he's changed into one of those things? Nothing human could have made it back here in this weather without a guide light. Let's open it now. Why are you so damn anxious to let him in here? Because they're so close. Maybe our best chance to blow it away. No. Just let him freeze to death outside. Child, what if we're wrong about him? Why then we're wrong? I mean, yeah, and, and also, too, I, I love the final scene. Yeah. Like, to go with that, I think the final scene is just perfect for this movie. And again, it's, it's this idea of like, it's the, it's the two kind of two antagonistic characters are the ones that are left, left together. Um, again, 
spoiler a little bit it's kind of like hateful eight um <laughs> where they're left together uh to kind of like watch watch the ending ending basically the creature effects okay we'll go back to that real quick the creature effects are just crazy yeah the dog one is the one that just is is that's one of the grossest ones to me <laughs> yeah and they just drop you straight into why. it it's the first one and it's the first one it's just it's so rough that whole scene is rough to me mm-hmm. of when when the when the thing dog is basically put in with the other dogs and it's that like they had like all the characters have no clue like what's going on and yeah clark's i guess clark's the one that is the tat he's he has the attachment to all the dogs basically yeah which i love um, you know i i don't want to show my hand too much here but i think i i'm i love richard Mazer as a character actor <laughs> gotta throw that out there um he's he's someone like for everyone listening if you can't picture yeah. clark in the movie when you get home if you're listening to this in the car like google richard Mazer today and you'll immediately go like oh yeah i've seen that guy I, you know I, I wouldn't say i've like read a lot of books about being in remote labs in the antarctic but it's like a stereotype that like the guy that keeps the dogs is weird <laughs> in all these stories. It's like, yeah. cause he usually just spends a lot of time out in the kennels. Like sometimes they just sleep with the dogs. Like, yeah. And, and so Mazer's great in that role because he's like the first one, like as soon as, as Brimley's like, if you're alone with this thing, it can take you over. He like, he like turns to Clark. He's like, how long, how long were you alone with yeah. that dog? And he's like, oh, a couple of hours. And and so and he's weird. He's like quiet yeah. and kind of suspicious. And so yeah, yeah. he's like the first one. Yeah, you're watching the movie. You're like, oh, it's him. He's de- yeah, like it's for he's sure. Definitely him. Like, yeah. And um, and then it's not. <laughs> he's just a weird dog guy. <laughs> he's just a weird. <laughs> he's just a weird dog guy. <laughs> yeah, I I I really do. It's interesting, and we'll talk about this later. But like I. There's not a lot of character stuff in the in the movie. I think there's like it's kind of like archetypes in a way. It's yeah. like this is the doctor. You, you get one or two the, traits per person. That's all you need for like a film of this size. And because it's a lot of character actors, like when you get into the, I'll get into the names later. Like who was rumored for this movie, and like you could make this all star cast if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. But then it's like it almost work. I, I, I think it works better because they're kind of all like unknowns in a way. Like nothing's really tipping your hand of like it's gonna be matt damon mm-hmm. like does that make sense it's yeah. like really the big stars i mean it's russell kurt russell and everyone else is kind of like it's it's supporting and character actors that are in this film oh that test of work doc oh i think so yes. somebody else sure thought so mm-hmm. well who else could have used that key nobody i just give it to copper whenever he needs it could anybody have gotten it from you doc i don't see how as soon as i'm finished i return it right away Great. When was the last time you used it? Huh? A day or so ago, I guess. I suppose somebody could have lifted it off me. Oh, that's come a... on. That key ring of yours is always hooked to your belt. Well, it's not I'm accusing everybody. Hey, you stop it! Not any words! Copper's the only one who's got any business with it. Oh, now wait a minute, Gary. You've been in here on several occasions. Doc thought of the test. So what? Is that supposed to clear him? Well, why Bullshit. would he come here and take it? No! So onset life. So the reason I didn't mention casting earlier is because when it came to cast and lead character of R.J. McCready, Kurt Russell was not cast until after filming began. 
apparently they were already shooting second unit photography in Juneau, Alaska when Russell was finally cast. Uh, for those who don't know, like second unit's kind of the shots that don't include your main cast, or in some cases it's like the action sequences. In this case, it's like, it's kind of the, all the Norwegian stuff, basically. Uh, like the, the Norwegian guy characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, funny enough, uh, all the Norwe- the, Norwe- the pa- apparently they only have 12 people on the glacier they were shooting on for those scenes. Mm-hmm. So the Norwegians the guy who's like shooting the gun and like, it's like, Oh, when like they drop the bomb or whatever mm. is the AD is oh. the AD of the film. And the guy who's like, and who's the, the, the pilot who's like kind of digging for the, the bomb or whatever, or the grenade or whatever. That's the production manager. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then in the scene where it's a shot of them, uh, taking the helicopter into the Norwegian base mm-hmm. and it's like Russell is, is doing it. The the back shot is uh, John Carpenter as Kurt Russell as McCready. <laughs> he was the he was the first because Russell hadn't been cast yet, like contract wise. So Carpenter is the first one actually. Where, like, yeah, so like, we don't like, even know if this photo double will work because we have no <laughs> idea who we're going to cast. Yeah, so Carpenter played it. Um, <laughs> so now Russell had already been in, in two other films John Carpenter made, mm-hmm. Escape from New York, and also the Elvis movie, um, where he played Elvis. The director wanted to keep his options open because he'd worked with Russell before. It's very much like Harrison Ford and like Indiana Jones, Seth and Lucas. But Russell was still involved in the development process uh, before he was ever cast, helping Carpenter out with several of his ideas when it came to the script. Um, principal photography of the film would finally begin on August 24th, 1981, and would last for a total of 12 weeks. Carpenter... Uh, demanded for there to be two weeks worth of rehearsals, which if anyone knows, is almost impossible to come by today. Mm-hmm. And it was even rare for back then because of how expensive it is to kind of pay for everyone during that time period. However, uh, even though this was Carpenter's first big studio film, he had earned enough credibility with his previous hits to kind of make this demand. Um, portions of the film t- filming took place at the Universal Studios lot, where it was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside. Uh, when they were shooting the interior scenes, they started in August and in, in, in September. So by using countless portable air conditioners, they're able to create a climate-controlled set of 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but also to to help get the uh, like the fog of the mouth or whatever, Russell mm-hmm. would apparently smoke a cigarette right before <laughs> they would shoot to get more kind of an exhale. Yeah, exhale. Yeah. Um, after filming in Los Angeles, the production would move to British Columbia because Carpenter wanted to have authentic locations for the film. The production team had built these sets during the summer in like in like Stewart, British Columbia, so that by the winter, went by the winter, they'd be covered with snow. Um, apparently, it was so cold the camera lenses would freeze and break if they were outside for too long. Um, on their way up there, the bus taking some of the cast and crew almost fell down a 500 foot embankment. Oh, God. Yeah, what a way to start production in a new city. Um, Also, a day before filming, Keith David broke his hand. So that's why for the first half of the film, he's wearing gloves the entire Mm. time. I mean, also, you know, they are in Antarctica, so I'd I'd forgive him for wearing gloves. That's true, that's true. Um, Now, when it comes to creature effects, a large portion of the film's budget went to just that. Uh, The effects were created by a team that were about 35 people to 40 people deep at its peak, and it was led by Rob Botton. Botten had originally worked with Carpenter on The Fog, and he was only 22 years old when he started the thing. Yep, 22. Uh, originally, Universal gave them $200,000 to make the creature effects, which at that time was the most money Universal had ever spent for effects like that. 
However, after storyboarding, they soon realized the creature budget would be around $750,000. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, however, it would end up actually being $1.5 million by the time it was over. Give it to him. Come on, yeah. Universal. You, you're the monster <laughs> studio. Yeah, do it. Um, when designing the creatures, Botten stated he, that he had no idea how his ideas would be implemented practically. But Carpenter never said no to him. Carpenter Lair said, what I didn't want with this movie was a guy in a suit. I grew up as a kid watching sci-fi monster movies, and it was always just a man in a suit. During filming, Botten was hospitalized due to exhaustion, double pneumonia, and a bleeding ulcer caused by his extensive workload. He said he 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 spent over... Yeah, this is why we have strikes. Uh, He said he spent (laughs) over a year living on the Universal Live. Let's not glamorize overwork, but but damn. He did some fine work. He said he spent over a year living in the Universal lot dedicated to his work. He said he never took a day off, and he slept on set or in locker rooms during that time on Universal. Oh, man. He would later he would later bring in Stan Winston, who later became famous for doing the Terminator kind of uh, uh, machine, uh, to help take off some of the pressure of him and the crew. And Stan Winston, he did the dog one, was kind of his big one. He did the dog uh, right. uh, creature. Production for the film would finally wrap in March of 1982 with a total budget that was around $15 million. And you know what happens when you shoot stuff? You go to the editing and you realize, oh man, what did we do? And that leads us to the aftermath. So once production Mm -hmm. wrapped, post-production began, and Carpenter began to realize a lot of the issues with the film as they began editing. He realized after the first cut that it was a lot of guys just standing in a room talking. So it felt boring to him. So they went back and reshot a few scenes, usually turning indoor scenes into outdoor scenes to open up the world. One of the scenes that I think was either added or shot to the outdoor was McCready's I Know I'm Human, which means the rest of you must be human too, which also is a fantastic scene we should have brought up earlier. But mm-hmm. that's kind of this great this great kind of moment when he decides to do the blood testing scene. Uh, Carpenter also, he, he, he felt that a lot of the scenes he had in there were like scenes with repeating information that needed to be cut, which happens a lot in your, in your edit of your film. Uh, Carpenter also realized that Lancaster's script did ha- didn't have a lot of individual moments, but mostly ensemble moments. So they went back and shot a few Kurt Russell scenes of just him. I think one of them was like maybe him talking into the tape recorder is what it was, mm-hmm. um, but not positive. But during the, during post-production, the bid conflict was, it was the ending. Oh, they, yeah. They didn't like it being left open. Yeah. So editor Werner Fields of Jaws fame was actually brought mm-hmm. on for time to create a clearer, more or more kind of unambiguous resolution. Uh, Carpenter had shot multiple endings and there were others that were discussed. One was with McCready being rescued. This is the one that was shot. McCready being rescued and showing he wasn't infected, giving everyone this kind of nice, happy ending that he survived. <laughs> uh, yeah. He survived the cold and he was he was saved. Uh, Alice was shot. This is one that was discussed, at least, was McCready and Childs both become infected, but are also rescued. And they would basically go off and kind of infect the rest of the world in a way. Um, but the one that was going to be the original ending was one was one that only had McCready surviving. And he was the only one left watching the place burn down mm-hmm. this was chosen because it tested slightly better with audiences um and when the ending of the film when the ending of the film with childs and mccready was tested audiences wanted to know which one of them was the thing apparently Car- carpenter told one of the audience members that it was up to their imagination and the person responded oh god i hate that so right before the film 
was to be printed for theaters, Carpenter and Universal executive Helena Hacker realized the film was better with the ambiguous ending of Childs and McCready mm-hmm. uh, watching the place burn down, having this ambiguous kind of nihilistic ending. Uh, Universal executive Sid Sheinberg, who was famous for giving Spielberg his start earlier in his career, hated the ending, and he told Carpenter, think about how the audience react if you see the thing die with a gigantic or with a giant orchestra playing. So it's he won this big thing. And speaking of ending with a giant orchestra playing, two weeks before release, Spielberg's E.T. was released oh, yeah. before this film, uh, which is the ending of E.T. of like big orchestra, mm-hmm. the thing going up or the, 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 the spaceship going mm-hmm. in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Producer David Foster attended a screening of E.T. And before the film, there was a trailer for the thing. <laughs> and apparently there was no response whatsoever. And Foster remarked, we're dead. The film was finally released in the middle of a crowded summer on June 25th, 1982, where it was met by scathing reviews, mostly scathing reviews, at least. Critics hated this film, many of which saying it was the most disgusting film they had ever seen uh, because of the creature effects. Even though some critics praised them for their inventiveness, they were just seen as too gory and bloody and disgusting. I think Ebert said that like it was the most disgusting thing you ever seen put on film. And Siskel's like, mm-hmm. really? Um, also, uh, audience uh, critics hated its cynical view on the world and humanity. Uh, the film received quotes like "instant junk," quintessential moron movies movie of the 1980s, and the biggest insult of all, boring. What? Uh, <laughs> even the director our co-director of the original film, Christian Neby hated the film saying, if you want to, if you want blood, go to a slaughterhouse. As I said, our good friend, Roger Ebert was not a fan of this movie, giving it two and a half stars and calling it a great barf bag movie. However, his co-host of their television show of sneak preview Slayer becomes at the movies. Gene Siskel applauded the film for its themes of paranoia and distrust saying that beneath the disgusting special effects, there was an interesting movie about McCarthyism and finding and realizing losing, losing oneself. Uh, also the biggest movie that fit that the film or and also because the the release of et two weeks before it was negatively compared to et because et had a more optimistic view of the world and of aliens which audiences were wanting in that moment um the film did not do much better with audiences because it only grossed 19 million dollars on that 15 million dollar budget uh when carpenter looked back on the financial failure of the film he said the audiences did not like the film's depressing viewpoint because the country was in the middle of a recession. So they wanted some sort of optimism, which is what E.T. gave them. Do you think that's also somewhat of a Spielberg effect just because of Close Encounters? Like Maybe. This it's, idea it, that, that like, all... aliens could be benevolent. I don't know. It just feels like the stuff. Maybe there were more around. I know I know Mac and me, but... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it just... The, the thing feels like it fits more into like sci-fi than... I guess with Star Wars too, people were feeling a little bit more like hopeful about space than like dreading but it. Also, with Spielberg that year, because yeah, I think it was like the Spielberg summer, if I'm not mistaken, because Poltergeist was coming out as well. Yeah, and so like all the marketing was like Spielberg's got two movies, even though he didn't direct it. That was also mm-hmm. directed by who? Toby allegedly, Hooper. Toby Hooper. I mean, he directed it. It was allegedly directed by Spielberg. That's what was legend. Um, but anyway, uh, some people also blame kind of what you just said a little bit was the saturation of the sci-fi fantasy horror market that was happening in 1982 and 1981 because there were several films like et like poltergeist like tron like mad max 2 conan the barbarian and star trek 2 the wrath of khan 
Some also blame the film's R rating. The failure of the thing also greatly altered the career of John Carpenter, and it was like immediate. He was quickly fired from the upcoming adaptation of Stephen King's book, Firestarter. And he had also, before filming the thing, he had signed this multi-picture deal with Universal that was quickly bought out after the failure of the thing. Uh, he, he had later stated that if the film would have been a success, he would have a completely different career. Because he said, he said I like the movies I made afterwards, but a lot of it was like me taking a job to make money and to, have, to do a movie. Mm. However, after years after the release, the film began to be reassessed by critics and fans alike. The rumblings began in the early 1990s with some critics saying that one day the thing might be deemed a classic film. Today is considered by me as one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, the greatest, one of the greatest remakes of all time, and one of the greatest films of the 1980s. And honestly, the reputation of the film continues to improve with each passing year. I mean, we got a prequel movie. Did you mm -hmm. ever see the prequel to this movie? The, the I, 2000, like, I have. It is... It is a, a story for another day. Well, I mean, we can boil it yeah. down to uh, one of the weirdest studio calls of all time was they shot the movie with practical creature effects. And then someone at the studio said, yeah, let's do it. CGI instead CG over <laughs> all of the, the practical, practical effects. effects. And like, as far as like, I've heard rumors online that there is a like practical cut out there, but I've also, I've seen people shoot that down and be like, nah, we like deleted all the files. Like, there's never going to be like a like a like a practical cut of it but suppose there's been like pictures that have leaked from the set that it was like uh -huh. really well done and then yeah. somebody somebody who obviously had no idea what people appreciated about the original movie was like now nah, let's 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 do some vfx instead <laughs> and, and and like that with that with that one too it's like it was a prequel but also kind of i, I remember it kind of just follows the same kind of story pattern yeah. as yeah like it's weird the yeah, first it's, one uh, yeah because about the norwegians is what it is yeah it's basically the same story um but they're also they announced a remake uh in january 2020 by the way well, blumhouse is doing it maybe they maybe they'll do it practical this time <laughs> yeah maybe it practical yeah uh so yeah so when looking at this film, what worked about it? I mean, we've talked about it a lot. What worked about it? Effects, cast. Like we said, you know, if this is, it's a very bare bones script. And so you need yeah. strong performances. And I think, I think it was really smart to cast character actors in this because even if you feel like, oh, this might be something I should get more names in, th these yeah. are all kind of character actor roles. Like you have to be able to come in and get and take like maybe two character traits that the script is giving you and turn that into a character. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you brought in all these kind of top name actors, they're going to get to the part and be like, ah, oh, there isn't enough meat here for me. Um, so the people you are casting are people who are used to making their own meat <laughs> out of a, out yeah. of a bare bones yeah. script. Exactly. It's like someone like uh, David Clennon who plays the, who's uh Palmer because uh, he's kind of more the comedic one in the mm -hmm. group um, but like he works for this movie but like if that's a bigger name to like that we have to make him funnier is what mm -hmm. it kind of feels like uh, so yeah I think I think it works having those characters I mean like Brimley wasn't that well known at the time Brimley so this is 82 this is before Cocoon it's before Cocoon and it's before The Natural so the th his big moment was a year before in a movie called Absence of Malice. Mm -hmm. Have you seen Absence of Malice? I have, yep. 
Okay, yeah, because he has like one scene and he just like kills it in that one scene. Mm -hmm. And then that's like the year before this film. So I also like the production design I'll mention. I think the production design is amazing um, in this film, yeah. not just the creature effects. Um, how do you feel about the score? Morricone's score? I think it works. It's not, I wouldn't say it's his best work in any sense, but. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like the contained space as aspect. Like, I like contained space movies of just mm -hmm. like we're in this one location and there's nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, again, it's very much like Agatha Christie, like, 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 uh, murder mystery in a, in a manner, manner, murder mysteries or whatever. Okay. Next question. Did anything not work? Honestly, I, I've got nothing. I, I think I this have is, one, I have one thing. I have okay, one thing what you got? that I hate the opening shot of this movie. Because if you pay attention, the opening shot is a spaceship flying in. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a quick yeah. shot, but it starts the, the movie, CGI. and I hate yeah. it. It's not just CGI. It's almost just like, okay, I know what the movie's about now. Yeah, that's true. Like, I'm, I, because, I, like, I never think about that of, like, I always think of, like, what happens to them, like, trying to figure out what's happening. But with that opening shot, it just tips the hand right there of, like, oh, it's an alien. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, I've never thought about that. I usually just because the the next, you know, the dog, the dog helicopter stuff is so strong. I, I I usually just put that scene out of mind. But yeah, you forget it because almost because it starts off with like the thing like tearing through the screen is what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's right after that. You're like, oh, that's cool. You forget what you just saw. Mm -hmm. And because it's also kind of small. I just yeah, it just at this time I was like, really? That's how we started this movie. Uh, this is one of those movies. I, I've read a couple of like lists in the past. It's been like movies that like give the plot away through like hidden things and it's stuff like you know like vader is german for father so if you speak german yeah. you know star wars already but um like supposedly what that if you like know norwegian like you can just <laughs> the guy like lays down the whole <laughs> plot when he hops out of the helicopter does he really yeah he's like that wow. thing's not human you have to kill it now or it's gonna take over like, <laughs> like what's he talking about <laughs> So you got learn multiple language, guys. That's what this means. Learn multiple languages. Yeah, this must have played pretty weird in Norway when it dropped. Norway. <laughs> they're like, okay, just like, cool. I, get I got the plot. I know what's going on. <laughs> uh, all right. Off the Universe cast. A lot of names. A lot of names. Um, so Gary. Gary is played by uh, Donald Moffat. Yeah, he's kind of the one if, for people who have seen it. He... I don't know that they outwardly say he's like military, but he, he he feels like the one who's been like stationed there by the army to like oversee things from a military yeah. point of view. So here are the names for that for Gary. Uh, Jerry Orbach. Okay. Lee Van Cleef. Mm -hmm. Powers Booth. Oh, okay. All kind of, all, all good names. All very getting, different. I was getting Lloyd Bridges vibes. It's funny you mentioned the Bridges, by the way. That's no? going to come in a little bit later. <laughs> okay. Um, Dr. Cooper. Mm-hmm uh brian dennehy yep who's close to doing it apparently i can see that and william daniels okay mr feeney from boy meets world yeah uh for palmer kind of the comedic character uh charles fleischer gary shanling jay leno <laughs> oh we're god all, we're all we're all looked at for the picture Ugh. jay leno in the thing don't put jay leno in this please <laughs> just jay leno in the thing <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> I'm coughing just from that. Um, 
for Blair, which was Brimley's character, mm-hmm. they originally wanted, they were afraid he was made too big. And I think it was like scheduling conflicts. Donald Pleasance. Okay. For Blair. <laughs> I'm just picturing. It's a thing! <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm picturing the scene when he's like smashing everything. He's like, I shot him six I'm times. Six times. <laughs> he's not human. Um, For Childs, uh, Carl Weathers. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey Holder, who was in Live and Let Die, I think is what it is. He's one of the characters mm. in Live and Let Die. Uh, Bernie Casey, who I think is the principal in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, is what it is, or teacher in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, Isaac Hayes, because hmm. Isaac Hayes was in Escape from New York by Carpenter. Yeah. The the big front runner that was going to be cast until Keith David, Ernie Hudson. Oh, okay. Would have been very different different career for Ernie Hudson if that happens. Yeah, I'm. I'm- Keith David is perfect in this. I, I wouldn't take I think anyone Keith else. Keith David is amazing. Yeah, I agree. So here are other actors that were considered for role. I ha- I'm, I'm leaving McCready for the end. Uh, here are other actors considered for roles. Not sure which ones they were considered for, but they were allegedly considered. Chris Christopherson. Maybe Clark. That'd be interesting if it was Clark. Uh, John Hurd. Mm, Fuchs. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just throwing, throwing out there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Fred Ward. Huh. Gary. Okay, I can see I'm that. making all these up to the yeah. audience, but this is just when when you throw these names at me, that's Scott Glenn, maybe Fuchs. Yeah, he could, I think he could. I think he could be Blair too. Yeah, I think he could be a Blair. Um, Tom Berenger, Gary, Gary. Okay, and last one on this list, Ed Harris, Fuchs. Okay, or that guy that the what's the guy's name that that gets the no he wouldn't no i was the guy the guy that gets the the defibrillator i can't remember his name but yeah yeah, yeah. it's ed harris would be yeah no i think ed harris would be a solid fuchs okay here's the rj mccready mccready names apparently it was written or i think it was i think i read it was written for two people in mind clint eastwood yeah no harrison ford yeah i can see ford okay yeah I'd like to see. I'd like to see. I mean, Ford has done what lies beneath, but I'd like to see. Yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen '80s Ford in like a like an out and out horror movie. I think he would have been good. That's interesting. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, another name that I think you will like, Sam Shepard. Yeah. I don't know how. I don't know how you McCready, but it's just Sam Shepard. So there's that. Yep. Um, Christopher Walken. <laughs> Yeah, I'll give you. I'll give you early yeah, 80s yeah, walking. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Here are two names that apparently turned down the movie. Nick Nolte. Mm-hmm. And the last and final name, Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges. Yeah. I feel like I feel like it's kind of a wonder with the way that like people cancel each other out sometimes in Hollywood. Yeah. It's a wonder that Bridges and Russell have had the successful careers that they both had. Because I feel like there's probably so many lists out there. When Russell was up for an iconic Bridges role and Bridges was up for an iconic Russell role. And like one gets a bunch of Oscar nominations and one does not. Like it's Russell never gotten one. It's sad. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Film facts. Do you remember Wilbur Stark, the guy who bought all these rights? I do. Well, he would he would later sue the film's production. No, of course he does. For forty three million dollars due to his placement in the film's credits. His name was not shown till the end of the film, which he stated was a less prestigious position, and he missed out on several other films because of it. He also stated that he helped on developing the script and writing the movie. 
Producer David Foster said that Stark did not work on the film in any way besides selling the rights. Stark would would counter by suing for another $15 million against Foster, claiming slander. Uh, As it seems, not sure what happened with this lawsuit, but it's, it's, can't find a report on it. I was about to say, one thing you can, someone could have told that man was don't F with the WGA when it comes to claiming. (laughs) Yeah, uh, how much work you did on a script because they know. Yeah, Wilbur Stark never heard from again. No, uh, he had a he 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 made money and so, he did a lot of TV stuff early on. Uh, the film opened the same day as Blade Runner. Wow, talk about some underappreciated sci-fi <laughs> on the weekend. Both were financial and critical failures upon release uh, before finally developing a cult following over the years. I was say how many how many Star Wars fans double featured that weekend and then walked out like oh my god i'm so disappointed <laughs> um some un oh so apparently one of the characters what i read one of the characters was initially going to be a woman but the actress who was cast in the role became pregnant and was recast for a man i don't know why i didn't just cast an actress for if that's true um because initially in the first film there was one female character mm. in the 1951 version. Um, some unused music from Morcone's score was actually used in Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight. Morcone would win an Oscar for his work on the film with the same music he was nominated for a Razzie for in 1982 as the worst <laughs> score of the year. Wow, how dare you, Razzies. <laughs> uh, the film is screamed, screened every February at the uh, Amadson Scott South Pole Station, a U.S. scientific research base base in honor of the beginning of winter. Uh, It is also a tradition of the British Antarctic Research Center to show it every June 21st in honor of their yearly midwinter celebration. (laughs) I got to tell you, I... Scientists um, love this movie, apparently. Yeah, I found a couple of TikTok accounts for people who are stationed in Antarctica. (laughs) And everyone down there seems to have a great sense of humor. I guess guess you kind of have to, but this, this just solidifies it for me. That's amazing oh gosh uh one interesting bit carpenter and director of photography dean cundy initially wanted to shoot the film in black and white but universal was worried that, it, that if they did that it would not be able to play as much on cable hmm. the norwegian base is actually just the american base after they shot the film's final explosion to save money on wow, the production that's smart production budget that's yeah a good call. that's a that's a solid solid ad upm team right there exactly the dudes who are the norwegians were just like yo we gotta uh let's do this instead Rob Botton's effects credit at the fi- film's end actually caused Universal to receive a $25,000 fine for improper use of titles. Yeah. Uh, Wilford Brimley was unaffected by the blood and gore on set because he had been a cowboy before, and when Carpenter asked why he didn't really react to all the blood, he said, this is like picking up my laundry. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right, Wilford Brimley. Uh, the creature effects used a variety of materials, including mayonnaise, creamed corn, microwave bubble gum, and KY jelly. Mm. Fun fact. Last two things. One of the things that's been praised for the film is its inclusion of one of the greatest dog performances in cinema history, as some people that say. That dog is so good. I was <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. The, the, that, how how'd they get that dog to play an alien? Like that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> So apparent. So so his the dog's name is Jed. Jed is not the opening dog that's running, but he's uh-huh. and he's the one in all of the yeah. inside stuff. He's so suspicious. How'd they make that yeah. dog <laughs> be just like <laughs> sus like that? Yeah, 
that scene when he's like 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 that is such like when they put him into the the kennel and he you can tell that the yeah. other dogs are like wait a second this isn't a dog and he's just being like yeah. like kind of creeping in so good yeah they said he had to like that, that called for like that type stuff and they were just like oh this guy this kid's dog's good apparently backs around the dog um he was born at a humane society in washington uh where henry winkler's second cousin adopted him no <laughs> Shout out the fun for his collection of S- Siberian Huskies and Alaskan M- Malamutes. Uh, he would later become famous playing White Fang in the movie mm. White Fang with Ethan Hawke. He played him in both movies. Um, he would pass away at the age of 17 or 18. Damn. He was retired uh, to an animal sanctuary in, in Acton, California. And uh, after um, White Fang, and then once he was once he passed away, he was put up to the mixed breed sanctuary that Henry Winkler's uh, second cousin Gary owns up in Washington. So yeah, he was really good mm-hmm. and became a dog actor. Uh, the last thing about the film's poster, uh, Drew Struzan created the film's famous poster in less than 24 hours, just based on the premise of the film. He saw no pictures or anything. After seeing the poster, Carpenter was incredibly upset and disheartened. He said that he had spent so much time trying to get away from that sci-fi trope of a man in a suit and what's on the poster, a man in a suit. He felt like Hmm. some slasher movie and he stated they should have just painted a bloody knife in his hand. Hmm. Well, so story questions. Do you have one? You know, it's, I guess, I guess, you know, the ultimate question is like, is McCready the thing? Or his um, child's, yeah. Or or his child's. I gotta throw it yeah. out there. Mate, call me, call me uh, an optimist. I I don't. I think they're both human because I think they're both human too. Because I don't think the thing would have like amalgamated itself and thrown like everything it had at McCready yeah. in that last scene. If there was like another piece of it walking around, maybe maybe it's yeah. that smart. But um. yeah. Also, like I feel like I feel like the thing would eventually like just kill McCready right there. Like it's mm. like who is he? Who is he waiting for? But it's just this great ending of this mistrust, this distrust or mistrust between those two. A lot of theories that say that Keith David's actually the thing, because there's something sound like his breath isn't as strong as uh, Russell because it's because the, the 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 thing doesn't get cold basically. Mm-hmm. The, he he thrives in the cold, uh, and I think Cundy even said that he like. It's they changed the lighting of his eyes to where like the everyone who had the thing had like a specific light in the eyes. I don't know if that's true. That could just be someone making that up to like to say that, oh, I believe it's child's. Um but some people have a theory that it's actually child's um that does it. Yeah, because he I mean he's 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 gone for he just Yeah. He runs disappears off. randomly. Yeah, and they're just like, Why is he running away? I my question I had was when does Brimley when when does Blair become the thing? I mean, from from the work that he's done, pretty early on it would yeah, appear. Yeah, just gets, yeah, pretty early on. Yeah, he dug a whole well, tunnel like they, and built himself a spaceship. They do something very interesting in this movie. It's, it's the fade to blacks they mm-hmm. do with the editing between scenes, and so that's why it's like you never really know where you're at in the story. Yeah, you do specifically. You you do get that from that narration scene, kind of. I think he just says it's been two weeks. Um, yeah, you know, which would obviously give Brimley plenty of time to. But that's the thing, you know that's the thing about the thing is all it takes is like one of the guys who's been infected to go out and he can 
literally like shoot yeah. some shoot some webbing you know through the door and then boom it's Bramley. Yeah. so boom with yeah <laughs> I, I i don't care how super strong or super fast which they never really established for the thing but like it takes it's gonna take him a little bit of time to build that spaceship from scrap that's so, what yeah, i was about I to say too yeah for a while he, they're just like it looks like blair's been busy down here and not just that now that he built the the damn spaceship he like dug out a hole yeah. built a whole like workstation mm-hmm. and then built a spaceship out of the parts that are there in that like little shack or whatever yeah crazy do you think the thing has survived in any way i know it's like those two but like i think in like i can't remember if it was a either the novella or something was talking about how like it ends with like birds flying over above over 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 them and they make it makes you think that like the birds are now infected by the thing or yeah, something. Yeah, that sounds that sounds familiar. I think I had heard that at some point that like yeah. they think they've gotten it and then they like see birds flying off and they're like, Oh no. Yeah. Um I mean here's the thing. If it if all it takes is like a molecule of this thing and if it gets frozen it can like be rethought, I don't think there's exactly. any way that they obliterated every molecule of that thing that was that was on that that's exactly um lawyers think do you think they die at the end spoiler alert for people who yes. haven't watched it yet yeah okay who's coming to get them <laughs> they haven't had radio contact with anyone that's for, fair for weeks like for weeks month. yeah you're right yeah. i don't know if you want the happy end of like he's been rescued and he's uninfected yeah um, i don't think he would want to be rescued you know i think i think creedy and childs at that point are like so paranoid they're not even like i, I do think there are moments where mccready's fair. not even sure about himself you know even though he is like I'm, I'm human, but like I don't. I think if a helicopter were to circle overhead, they would just like wave it off, you know. Leave us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he makes well, that choice. You know, a little bit earlier on when it's him, Gary, and um, Nas and Nas. Nas. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's like, we're we're not making it out alive, so let's make sure this thing doesn't either. Like, he's he's come to peace with that. Yeah. Oh, here's the thing. What what do you think happens to Nas? Because that's one I read there was a scene that was filmed but I just want to see what you think of what because he disappears oh yeah it gets him for sure so I read that he actually comes in contact with the thing but he actually kills himself before the thing can get oh, him before he can get him. Oh, I like that yeah. I like that for him awards the Beatrice Strait award actor actress with limited scenes that kills it. I feel like I know who you're gonna say do you think I'm gonna say Richard Mazur I do think that I was gonna say Richard Mazur now I'm thinking it's the dog now that you brought it up <laughs> I'm okay with the dog. I'm okay with the dog. No, I do, okay I do think it's Richard Mazur. I think just because he does kind of like shoulder that, I, I don't know. I, I think the character of Clark is so well done because he's the first one that yeah. we go like, oh, that guy's obviously an alien. And then he's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's just a weird dude mm-hmm. who likes his dogs. Just loves his dogs, man. You can't blame him. Well, it's, like, it's like when he, and like when he finds out that other, all the dogs have been, have died, he just like, becomes so distraught you can tell when it cuts to him like mm-hmm. he's just so upset i understand it i get it okay i'm fine richard mazer beatrice Strait award winner clark yeah did you notice anything strange about the dog anything at all strange no what was the dog doing in the rec room i don't know it's just wandering around camp all day are you saying to me the dog wasn't put in the kennel until last night? Right. How long were you alone with that dog? I don't know, an hour, hour and a half, maybe. What the hell are you looking at me like that for? 
Um, Annie Potts X Factor Award supporting actor actress is the most memorable. I think it's tough. I I, I think it's two people. I, I think I know which two. Yeah. This is a this is a Brimley David. Yeah. Showdown, but I think I gotta give it to Keith David. I would give it to Keith David as well. Uh, the the scene when when he when he the the whole blood testing scene he's incredible in but like when he is, he is. when he's finally tested human and he's like untie me <laughs> <laughs> well david the thing about it is that like like david is kind of just in the background for a while mm-hmm. early on and then just becomes the second guy mm-hmm. he becomes the 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 not just the antagonist like the antagonist but he becomes the second main character yeah and that's something i you know i, I guess you could say that that some of these characters are underdeveloped i think it works perfectly for this because they they don't they don't drop you in you know these guys have all been living in close quarters with each other for a while they all know each other they all kind of gravitate towards you know no one ever goes like why should we listen to mccready he's just the helicopter pilot like everyone yeah. knows that mccready's the most level-headed he's got probably the, the best survival instincts they're like immediately like okay cool yeah mccready and like you, you can tell that they kind of feel the same way. Whatever Childs' background is, everyone obviously feels the same way about Childs. Yeah, well, there's that great moment when they're trying again when they're trying to decide who the leader is, and they go to like who the, the next person in command is, and he's just like, "You guys know I can't do this." Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just like, "You know I can't lead this." Like it's like this is this is murky waters. I don't know what to do. But yeah, but yeah, him, Keith, David, and and, and Bridge or not Bridges Russell <laughs> um, have. Just that again, that great antagonistic nature to both of them. Did you kill it? Where were you, Charles? Thought I saw Blair. I went out after him. Got lost in the storm. Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. If you're worried about me... If we've got any surprises for each other... I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. All right. The Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie director, actor, etc. This is an interesting one. This is an interesting one. I think we got to give it to the, the special effects. So that that's, that's yeah, it's, it's tough. Like, I think it's Carpenter or him. I think it's him. I think it's exact. I think it's Carpenter's best film personally. I, I, I agree. I agree. But um, yeah, it's just, you, you have to watch this movie like so many times to just even begin to grasp like what this thing is doing. Like it's got so many different Fair. ways of attacking and like the the blood testing scene when it like splits down the middle and like grabs uh, grabs another guy like by the head or, you know, the defibrillation scene. Like, yeah, it, it's just one of the most incredibly like realized, like dynamic monsters I think ever yeah. created. And and and, and man, you know it's it's you see that this guy read the script the script said this thing can adapt to absolutely whatever it needs to do to survive and he said cool we're gonna make that happen yeah it's it's insane and obviously we're at a very sensitive point right now gotta say no movie is worth putting yourself in the hospital for 
to to make it happen. But let's at least acknowledge he killed it. Like absolutely killed it. Wish that he was in a an environment where he was uh, able to feel more comfortable about going home after ten hours yeah. of work and and get some <laughs> sleep and then come back to work. But um, you know, we'll get there later. Yes, that, and that's that. Sponsored by Yahtzee. Um, <laughs> my my joke, my joke. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, I'll 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 back you. I'll back you on Rob Bottin. I I I I think it's Carpenter's best film. But in terms of what is memorable the most, it's like you talk about the special effects of the movie mm-hmm. is the thing. So I, I, I will, I'll go with you on that. And because after he's saying, like, I just tossed everything at Carpenter, he said yes. And so I just did it. And there are, there are apparently even more gross things they did not do because he was like, that's probably pushing it. <laughs> you see, what we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms and it imitates them perfectly. When this thing attacked our dogs, it tried to digest them, absorb them, and in the process, shape its own cells to imitate them. This, for instance, that's not dog. It's imitation. We got to it before it had time to finish. Finish what? Finish imitating these dogs. All right, final questions. If this film was remade today, and as I said, it's going to at some point, maybe, who knows, who would you cast in this film? All right. Well, I, I've got one one stunt casting for sure. Uh, okay. uh, Keith David's coming back in the Wilford Brindley role. Interesting. Interesting choice there. Okay. Okay. I think he'd be like, taking an axe to everything. He, I think current current age Keith David would be so good in that scene. Yeah. Even though Brimley was probably 35 in that original movie. <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> we just talked about that with um, with Big Daddy and on Count on a Hot Tin Roof. But yeah. hey, damn, people people really aged differently back then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm just going to throw some people out that I, I want involved okay. in this. Okay, yeah. Because the characters the characters could be different. The characters could be different. Just to get okay. some names. Well, the, the one, I, Windows. The one that's kind of sketchy. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Walton Goggins. I agree completely. I agree completely on that. I do. I do have Childs though. I will say that. Okay. Um, I'd really like to see Michael B. Jordan as McCready. Is just the first pe- person that's coming into my head. Okay, interesting choice. I like Michael B. Jordan. You know, I do. I, I'm just trying to think of some like who is someone that if I was in that situation, I'd turn to them and I'd go like, save me. <laughs> <laughs> that's not Chris Evans. No, I don't think so. Okay. Is is that okay. is that your pick? I'm just throwing out names. Okay. Uh I mean it's again like who's who's your leading man type thing? It's it's like Like here's the thing. I think it would be really fun to get Wyatt Russell, but I don't think he has I don't think he's got Kurt Gravitas. I agree with you on that. I mean I've thought about like it's like the, the go to picks is like is it Gosling, is it Pine? Uh I, I like Pine. Jordan. I'd be down with Pine. I I, mean, I you know how we like Pine. <laughs> <laughs> Just it's it's like put Chris Pine and Florence Pugh and Zoe Deutsch in this movie and we're good. Like yeah, that's kind of what that. it feels like with us. Yeah. Uh, no, my idea for Childs, Trevante Rhodes. Oh yeah, fr- from Moonlight. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be really great in this role. Yeah. Also, where's my where's my Glenn Powell role? Oh <laughs> yeah, Glenn Powell. That's our four people we usually go to. And with the older one being played, Ellen Burstyn. 
Is Glenn Power Palmer? Yeah, yeah. That's a weird. It's, it's a different pick for him, but it's yeah. it's like, yeah, who's playing Clark? Is the question. <laughs> um, Sturgill Simpson is going to be Clark. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm okay with that. I like that. Yeah, I'm down with that. Yeah. All right. We got. We got. We got. We need. We need actresses in this thing, though. I, I don't like the all dude, all dude cast. I want to, in, in kind of like the Gary type role and like the station commander, like a Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster's an interesting pick for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then for the for the doctor, um, uh, I want Jeffrey Wright. But again, I feel like we're going to going too much names. Going going names here. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bring back a Mar- Mary Elizabeth Winstead and put her in something better. Is yeah. the thing. Or just find somebody, find that that practical cut. Make it if we can make the if we can make the Snyder cut happen. Let's. If we're um, gonna make Legend of Boggy Creek a big movie again, we're gonna make <laughs> the thing 2011 get the practical cut released. That's what we're gonna do. <laughs> so a lot of names. So so McCre- who are we to sound McCready? We're going by Obi Jordan. Is that is that the the plan? I like I like Pine. I like Pine. Pine's okay. a little bit more grizzled. I was thinking, I was okay. thinking Michael B. Jordan is kind of like a Killmonger type of like fresh out the army kind of thing. But um, either one, just two different directions. I like, you could go. Let's let's go. Yeah, let's go Pine because I, I I like what Pine and Trevante Rhodes could do. I yeah. would I would love to see that happen for sure. Okay, does this film fit with any other genres besides the body horror genre? Yeah, I think like you said, it's definitely got that kind of like Agatha Christie, like mm-hmm. chamber piece whodunit. Um, yeah. It's kind of it, you know it feels like a sci-fi horror twist on that specifically. I agree completely. Yeah, it's very yeah the contained kind of thriller, in a way horror film, as well the in terms of broad strokes. Okay, how does this film fit with the body horror genre? Um, I think it is one of the best examples of it executed like pitch perfectly. Um, I I do think something we're gonna come up against a lot that not just for body horror but for like horror in general is a lot of times there is a focus on like the scares or the effects like over story and i think this is one that is a great balance of both and and you don't you don't have to sacrifice like i i I was telling you i just watched a movie this week and i was like the first half was god awful but (laughs) in the second half it had some really cool effects and it was scary and i really enjoyed the second half we're seeing overall but like, yeah. and that's the way you do have to talk about some horror films. Um, but I think this is one that's in that just like top tier of like everything about this movie works. Um, and, and those are those are the horror films that really, you know, there's all these like cult hits and people have like their personal favorites within this genre. But like there's there's this top tier of these work and this is why they're remembered. And I think this is definitely amongst that. Yeah. And then when looking at themes, I think it definitely has that theme of the core of like the fear of losing your humanity mm-hmm. and not knowing who has lost it. And if you're the next one, or if you have, that's the other thing. It's like, it's like, do you know that you've lost your humanity? Like, are you competing with the thing mm-hmm. like mentally in some way? Like what's happening when you get taken over? Um, so is this fear? And it's like this, that's the core It's like, I know I'm human, but I don't know if you guys are. Right. Um, but the question is, is that do you actually know if you're human or not? So that's very, very, that runs through this film pretty much the entire time all right thomas i think that's elm john carpenter's the thing all right we went through it all um and that means we're talking about next week's episode thomas what is next week's episode next week we'll be jumping ahead a few decades and talking about a film that uh, that has many loving references to the the thing um a little bit Uh more of a uh 
comedic take on the body horror genre, but we'll be discussing uh, James Gunn's Slither. And he'll be here. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, he won't be. I'll sadly. make a couple calls. Make a couple calls, Thomas. Uh, yeah, James Gunn's The Thing. Is that is, not, not The Thing? James Gunn's Thing. Oh, God. James Gunn's Slither. Uh, was that 2006? Is that yeah, the year it came uh, out? It was his directorial debut. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I don't know why I didn't know that. Um, well, that's next week. Also, to reviews real quick. We've been getting a lot more reviews and comments lately. The show's finally finding a larger audience. Uh, uh, getting larger by the week, it feels like now. But briefly, this review. We got an email. You guys can always email us, too. We don't usually say it on here, but you can email us at sonationpodcast at gmail.com. We got, we got a review email from uh, from Scott, who discovered us on, on Instagram, said that we're informative and have good clips and great questions. He's currently wa- listening to the Tony Scott series, and he's like, love his work, and now you turn me on to really investigate this guy. Um, he's currently watching Deja Vu because we recommended it on the show. Um, he also talked about how he remembered the summer Boggy, Legend of Boggy Creek came out, which we talked about recently on the show. Uh, and he talked about how there was a two-week uh, TV radio blitz before the film opened in the Boston area, and he didn't understand why such a B-movie drive-in grindhouse film was getting so much advertisement. And if you listen to our show, you kind of found out why. Um, And he was equally surprised to find out that it was a 4K restoration of Amazon Prime. And he said, my first thought was, where the hell they dig up that relic? (laughs) Um, So yeah, Scott, thank you so much for finding us. Uh, uh, Hopefully you you are sticking with us and you're telling your friends about us. Um, so yeah, but that's all we have for this episode. Make sure you uh, scri- subscribe to Sonation Podcast and Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. We love hearing from you and anything, anything you can put out there, social media, podcasting platform, anything, just going to get the word out. So if you're tired of telling your friends in person, just put it out there on the internet and then you can let a stranger know. Yeah. Five stars. Tell us what you like about us. If you... You're like, you're like Scott, if you are watching a film that we've talked about on the show that you've enjoyed or a film that you like that we've talked about and you haven't already, make sure you last on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. 